where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. I am Reverend Amelia Richardson Dress. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. This morning, we are beginning a sermon series on people of peace. Each week, we'll be exploring someone who has been a leader in peacemaking in some way. And the series has been in the works for several months. We knew that we would want peacemaking to be a focus in June, originally in order to tie into peace camp. Uh, and then when the COVID-19 pandemic forced us to begin thinking about new ways to do peace camp, we knew again that the work of peace would become even more important. What we knew even a couple months ago is that when people experience fear, it easily leads to a desire to control through power, through force, unless we figure out how to cope with it. And our role as Christians, as people of peace in the world, is to do the work of coping with our fear. So we lined up two series for summer. One of them is People of Peace, which we begin today. And we'll begin hearing stories of people who are doing the work of being peacemakers in today's world. And then in July, we'll start practices of peace, where we will explore the spiritual practices that help us stay centered in the work of peacemaking that we know we are called to do. So I'm telling you this so that you know what's coming, but I'm also telling you this because while the series and today's topic on racial reconciliation turned out to be especially timely, it isn't new, and it isn't going to be over quickly. I was sitting with, um, or on a Zoom call with, the planning team for what is now Peace Out earlier this week, and I remembered that the theme for Peace Camp three years ago was racial justice. And I remembered, too, about how Jesus was telling people to live in peace with those who do not look like them, those who do not practice their faith like them 2,000 years ago. And I suppose that one way that you could look at that is to say that it is uh, futile. But that's not at all what I take from it. What I take from it is that it, it continues to be important and urgent, and that we are part of a long tradition of people who have done this courageous work. Because the Peace Camp uh, planning team so far has been white, and because it is mostly Christian, one of the commitments that we've made through the years is to try to highlight the stories of people who do not look like us. And so in following that tradition, you will see that in the sermon series over the next few weeks as Reverend Sarah and I share some stories of modern peacemakers. 
Sharing these stories is another way of practicing the spacious listening that many of you are practicing along with Sarah this month. And for those of us in the congregation who are white, I think it is also a way of remembering that we aren't the only ones doing the work. We aren't even probably the first ones doing the work. I always take it seriously when I try to tell somebody else's story, uh, but I also do it as something of a spiritual practice, a way of keeping uh, my life in the big picture. And so it's in the spirit of looking at this big picture that we have a story today that I am reading out of the Read, Wonder, Listen story Bible. Uh, it's written by Laura Allery and Anne Shang. And we're reading it in that way in part because this is traditionally our intergenerational service. But we are also reading it out of a story Bible because it is a complex story. If you read it in a regular Bible, it is stretched across several books. And so like a lot of other important stories, you have to start pulling on all these different threads to be able to put the story together. Let us hear this story this morning. From his palace window, King Josiah could hear and see the buzz of activity around the temple. Stone masons and carpenters were hard at work repairing the building. It would cost a lot of money, but Josiah was sure it would be worth it. The temple is the house of God, he thought. If we look after it, surely God will keep it and us safe from danger. There was danger all around the kingdom of Judah. A new empire had risen in the east, Babylon. The land between the rivers where Abraham and Sarah once lived had become so powerful that even Assyria was afraid. While Josiah was pondering these things, a servant burst into the room. He was covered with dust and cobwebs. In his arms was a bundle wrapped in cloth. Your majesty, he gasped, we found this hidden behind a wall in the temple. When the king unwrapped the bundle, he found an old parchment scroll. Read it, he commanded. The scroll told the story of how Moses led the people out of slavery into Egypt how he went up the holy mountain to talk with God, and then how God showed Moses the best way to live. The servant read the scroll aloud. You will be bound to each other, says God. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will keep my promise to give you a land to live in, and I will guide you in the best way to live and you will promise to follow me and trust me to show you the way. As Josiah heard these words, his eyes filled with tears. We have not kept this promise, he said. Why was this book hidden? We should have been reading it all the time. Making the temple beautiful is important, but how we live as a people is even more important. From that day on, King Josiah tried to follow God's ways, but many of his people did not want to change. 
Their hearts were as hard as stone. Why should we care about some old book, they said. God has promised to protect Jerusalem and its kings. We have the temple right here. We are sure to be safe no matter what we do. And so they did not worry when Babylon conquered Assyria. The great city of Nineveh was destroyed, and many rejoiced at the fall of their old enemy. But their joy did not last. The armies of Babylon reached Jerusalem. They smashed down the walls, tore apart the temple, set the city ablaze. Many of the people were taken away to Babylon. A few remained behind. Among them was the prophet Jeremiah. Through his tears, he watched the captives go. And then he did a strange thing. He went out and bought a small piece of land just outside the ruined city walls. Babylon soldiers had trampled and burned it. But to Jeremiah, it meant hope. Hope that someday there would be life and laughter and gardens growing in Jerusalem. May this be a story of spirit for us this morning. I learned the word erasure from Belvi Rooks. Belvi was a mentor in a class that I was taking earlier this spring, just about the time I was looking around for modern peacemakers to highlight. And because I think it is so helpful sometimes to have a face to the name, I have a picture for you, just so you can picture. Erasure is what the prophet Jeremiah was afraid of. He was afraid that his people would no longer exist. As he watched them taken prisoner, driven away into Babylon, Jeremiah worried not only for their lives, but for their memories. What would people know about them in the future? Would they know their hopes and dreams, their sorrows, their heartaches? Would they know how they loved and sang and prayed? Would future generations know that they had tried to build something worthy of God in this place? In 2007, Bellevue Rooks and Didon Gills were visiting Ghana on their honeymoon. Both of them had been engaged in the work of advocacy for a while, and it was their passion for the work that took them to Ghana. While they had been trying to unravel the complexities of racism in the midst of their work on child advocacy and homelessness and climate change. They had reached a point where they wanted to get some context. Didon Gills, in an interview, described it as uh, something like going to the hospital. When you go to the doctor's office, you show up and they hand you a stack of paperwork to fill out. They ask for information about your parents and your grandparents and your extended family members. And I thought of it, uh, those of us 
who teach or have taught or work with children in some way, you know that we do the same thing when a child is struggling. It's not enough to say to them, stop struggling. We want to look back and we want to understand what is happening. Are they hungry? Have they experienced trauma? Are they struggling with friendships? As Didon Gills said, we don't often do that with race. As part of our bigger national conversation, anyway, because some people are doing it. Many of us have a tendency instead to say, get over it, move on. All of that was a long time ago. But just as we couldn't understand the Bible story about Jeremiah buying a piece of land without also hearing the years and years of how it came to that point, just as your doctor wants your grandmother's medical history to figure out how to treat your broken toe, we need our history to understand our present. So it was in Ghana at the House of Slaves where people were kept before being sold that Belvi Rook sat at the door of no return, which is where people were boarded onto the ship, and she experienced the beginnings of another transformation. And I say another because uh, I really want to be clear that Belvie wasn't new to this work. She had been doing it for years. She had been living, breathing, hoping, praying at the intersection of ecology and child advocacy and feminism for some time. And it turns out that even if you are aware of the hurts of the world, even if you have already been broken open wide time and time again, even if you understand in your own body the power of racism, you might still discover that transformation doesn't come in one of those magical mountaintop experiences with shining lights and singing angels and a feeling of peace. Transformation might come in the depth of despair. It might come in a literal or a metaphorical pit of anguish. In Christian tradition, we borrow a phrase from St. John of the Cross to talk about moments like this one. We call them dark nights of the soul. It's not an easy place to be. But it is the place where transformation can happen. And so if you find yourself in a dark night of the soul, lean into it. The only way out is through. The Reverend William Barber said something similar this past week when he said, mourning, still, mourning means that people still believe things can change. Protest is hope. The hope is in the morning, and it is deep. For Bellevue Rooks, this moment came in a dungeon, 
a doorway that had once been the doorway between slavery and home. A place where just above it a little bit there is a church. But there is no hope. And so Rooks had a spiritual crisis which became a spiritual awakening. And when she tells this story, she tells it with great humor, because you might remember this was happening on their honeymoon. I'm sure you can all appreciate that the darkness and the tears and the grief that she found herself in was not at all what she and Gills wanted to be doing at that point in their lives. I have often thought how nice it would be if transformation could stick to a schedule. It would be lovely if it was careful not to intrude on our family moments or to overload us when there is already so much going on. But we take it when it comes. And so in the midst of all of that, of literal days in a hotel room where they had planned to do more traveling, spent in despair over the erasure of a people. Dedon Gills said to Belvi, what would healing look like? What would healing look like? People asked this question to Jesus this way. What does the kingdom of God look like? Or in Matthew 24, which is our focus scripture for peace out this year, they say, how will we know when you are coming back? And Jesus, who is never one to answer straight up when he could tell a long story instead, shares several parables with them. And he leads up to the parable of the sheep and the goats ending with, as you did to the least of these, you did to me. Jesus knew the power of putting a face on the suffering. And so it might be that one question we could ask is, who is it we are willing to do the work of healing for? Whose face do we put on the suffering in order to find the courage to wade into the hurt. The question that Dedon asked Belvi in that moment, what does healing look like, turned out to be the pivotal question for her. She found an answer eventually in the breath of spirit that whispered the refrain of Alice Walker's poem, Torture, which begins like this. When they torture your mother, plant a tree. When they torture your father, plant a tree. What would healing look like? For Bellevue Rooks, healing began to look like planting trees. The foundation that she and Dedon Gills started growing a global heart 
holds the mission of healing the wounds of the past in the present while creating a sustainable future. Their dream was to plant trees all along the transatlantic slave route and along the underground railroad route in the US. It was a big dream. The work continues, but Dedon Gills died a couple years ago. A reminder that I take that the work isn't in vain, even if it goes unfinished. They chose the trees because of the joint threat of erasure. Erasure from slavery. Erasure from climate change. They chose trees because trees breathe for all of humanity. And I wonder if maybe they even chose trees because like the prophet Jeremiah, they knew the power of claiming even the smallest bit of land as a sign of healing and hope. At our environmental justice ministry team meeting on Monday, where we have the practice of sharing our own personal steps forward in creating a sustainable future, Julie Nasek talked about the beauty that she was finding in listening to the trees. And it fits so well with what I had been reading about the work of growing a global heart that I asked her to share it again with us this morning. I like to walk. It's my favorite exercise for both my body and my soul. I like to walk unencumbered by entertainment in my ears, so I'm fully aware of what surrounds me. One of my favorite things to do as I walk is to look for a gift. Once it was a cardinal, in a flowering apple tree. It has been a purple striped crocus peeking out of snow, or once the flame-colored leaves fallen from a Japanese maple. The last couple of months, it has been trees. Matthew Fox in a daily devotional has reminded us that we cannot live without trees, literally. Because of trees, we have air that makes it possible for us to breathe. He suggested we take time to really see the trees around us in their infinite variety and beauty. So I have been finding the gifts of trees along my walks, whether the young ones in my neighborhood, the mature in Old Town, or the evergreens in the foothills. I haven't hugged one yet, but I do stop to look closely at the beauty of the different textures of bark and have padded on occasion. My favorite tree is the crab apple that we planted 20 years ago in our courtyard when we moved to Longmont. I don't know what that makes it in human years, but as I approach my 84th birthday, I feel a real affinity to this tree. It has been a vibrant pink beauty in the spring, 
a sensation of scent and flower, and has given so much joy to both myself and to the birds who shelter there as they come to my feeder, or in the fall as they feast upon the tiny fruits. Through the years, it has had its top taken off in a freak fall storm, been pruned badly, which led in disease. And this spring was hit hard by the killing frost. The trunk and the branches have long breaks, and I wondered this year if it was time to have it removed. Then it leafed out. It is worn, but alive, and seems to say, wait till you see me next spring. It has become my symbol of hope. Matthew Fox also shared a thought that has stayed with me. Whose tree do you sit under that you did not plant? The very nature of trees reminds us that the work of personal healing cannot be separated from the work of global healing. When we stand in solidarity with each other, we do it because we recognize that we hold each other's futures. In a few moments, we'll celebrate communion together and we will remember again the way that Jesus gathered around the table with his friends for that last time and how he poured himself and his love out for them. And in return, we may be reminded that we are asked to pour ourselves in our love out for Jesus and for each other. May it be so.